Appreciate Brother Tim's message this morning, focusing a great deal on the expression, he has sent redemption to his people. And I'll just make this one comment. Had God not sent redemption, there would be no redemption. There was no other place. There was no other source. He had to send redemption or we would not be redeemed. Thank God he did. And because of that, we'll be with him some sweet day. I'd like to take a look at a verse in the book of Psalms, chapter 31, or Psalms 31, verse 15. This was written by divine inspiration, but David is the human writer of this and expresses his experience. He says, my times are in thy hands. Now just above it, he says, but I trust in thee, in the Lord, thou art my God. My times are in thy hands. Now, this statement, first of all, providence of God presents to us this wonderful subject that's found throughout the Bible that God is a God of providence just as mean that God provides whatever we might stand in need of he provides with our daily needs he provides us with protection he provides us with deliverance and when you study the life of the man who wrote this this verse will begin to have far more meaning to you because if anybody that I read about in the Word of God who could say, my times are in thy hands, it'd be the psalmist David. When he says, my times, he's saying, my course of life, my thoughts, my decisions, my actions, my behavior, my times are in thy hands. Now, when I begin to look at David's life, uh, again, this verse uh, will have a greater impact. If we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we find that Saul is the king of Israel. And Saul disobeys God. He made an offering, a sacrifice, which he was not allowed to do. The king, he might be king, but he did not have the authority to do this. God separated the throne from the altar. And so Samuel comes and rebukes Saul for this. And he tells Saul that he shall take the kingdom from him. He says, for God has sought a man after his own heart. Now, he doesn't tell us who this is. Samuel doesn't know. Saul doesn't know. No one knows except God. In chapter 15, we find where Saul again disobeys God. He went out to fight against the Amalekites, and God's orders were clear and plain. He was to destroy all the enemy, and God would bless him to win it. But he kept the king. He kept the best of the, of the cattle and one thing and another. So once again, Samuel comes on the scene and Samuel rebukes Saul. Going a little further now with God's judgment, the kingdom is going to be taken from him, rent out of his hands and given to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Now, we know at this point, if you continue reading and you've read and studied the scripture, we know that's David, but Samuel doesn't know it's David. And Saul doesn't know it's David. David doesn't know it's David. Only God knows who he's talking about at this point. Then the 16th chapter starts and God tells Samuel, he says, you go to Jesse the Bethlehemite to his household. He says, for I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. Now we're getting a little more information. Keeping in mind now that David said, my times are in thy hands. David's times was in the hand of God when David didn't realize that, even know that. 
Saul didn't know who it was. Samuel didn't know who it was. No one knew who it was except God. And now God's going to identify him. He says, you go to the household of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now that's important. It means he lived in Bethlehem. Okay. And David is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in numerous ways. Of everybody in the Old Testament, we have many who are a type of Christ, but Joseph and David, more than any other characters, are a type of Christ. In fact, the name David occurs in the Scriptures more times than the name Jesus Christ does. So Samuel goes to the household of Jesse, who has eight sons, and God gives him instructions. He says, here's an anoint one of his sons to be the king of Israel, whom I shall show you. Now, he didn't leave in the hands of Samuel to do this, as far as making the decision. God says, I'll show you who it is. He says, now, I do not want you to look on his statue. I don't want you to look on his countenance. He said, because that's the way man goes about doing business. That's the way man judges. So don't make that mistake. You remember Saul was head and shoulders above everybody. And when Israel wanted a king to be like other people and God permitted them to do so, they went out and chose a man who stood out uh, in, a, in a group of men. You'd be able to easily identify him. He just stood out because he was so much taller than anyone else. He looked like that he just couldn't fail. He had all the attributes from a human perspective that a man can have. So he tells Samuel not to judge after his countenance or his appearance. And so Jesse brings out his oldest son. Again, this is how man thinks. Brings out his oldest son, but says, no, that's not the one. Then he brings the next one, the next one. And finally, he brings seven out. And none of those seven is the one who's a man after God's own heart. And then David says, do you have another? He says, well, yes, the youngest. But he's a keeper of the sheep. He says, we will not rest till you have brought him forth. And when he brought him forth, God told Samuel, he says, this is the one. Now, he's the eighth son. He's the youngest. He's the most unlikely of all the sons that God would choose to be the king of Israel. It would be David. Man would go about business a totally different way. So then we have a description of David. It says he was ruddy. He was of a beautiful countenance. And he was a goodly person. Now keep that in mind. Why would God tell us that? Why, why is that important? Hopefully we'll see that in just a, a little bit. But there are some things that's said about David. We now know his name. We know he's the eighth son. We know he's the youngest son. We know he's from Bethlehem. And now the revelation who God is going to choose or replace Saul is beginning to become clear and manifest itself. We find where God tells Samuel to arise and anoint him. This will be the first of three anointings of David. We hopefully say a little bit more about that in a moment or two. This is a more or less a private anointing among his brethren. And then we find an evil spirit came upon Saul. And some of the servants said, We know of a man by the name of David, a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Says he's a, a mighty valiant man, he is a man of war. He's a prudent man in matters, etc. We have five things said about him. And then we come to the very sixth thing, and this is the most important of the six. It says, and God is with him. Now, they had observed this, apparently from different aspects of David's life, that God was with him. Now, keep in mind our text, my times are in thy hands. 
When David was keeping sheep for his father on the hillsides of Bethlehem, he knew nothing of what's going on. He knew nothing of what I've already said. But now we find Samuel is informing him about this, and Samuel is going to anoint him to be the king of Israel. Now, Saul was the people's choice. David is God's choice. God always makes good decisions. Man in general makes bad decisions. And so we see this very clearly here between these two men in Saul and David. So now David is projected to be the king of Israel. He's not the king at this point. Saul still is. So we come to chapter 17. And we find where Israel and the Philistines are going about in a battle against each other. One's on one mountain, one's on the other side. They've had some skirmishes and all. But the Philistines have a champion in the name of Goliath. And Goliath issues out a challenge to the Israelites, says, you choose someone, I'll represent the Philistines, he'll represent you, and we will fight, and whoever slays the other one, then the other you know, people will be servants to the one that's victorious. No one accepted the challenge, no one. But little David is going to make a trip to where this is taking place. But we find that he's the youngest of five that's still at home. The three oldest brothers are in Saul's army. That leaves five at home, and David is the youngest. Now, why would Jesse send the youngest? Generally speaking, he would send the oldest of the five. He didn't send the oldest of the five. He sent the youngest because David's times are in the hand of the Lord. So he sends the youngest on a very important mission, a very important errand. And David comes to the battlefield, and he sees what's going on. He's heard the challenge of Goliath, and David asked this question, there's there, there are not a cause. He sees this uncircumcised Philistine giant defying the armies of the living God, insulting God, and David is not pleased about that, but nobody's picking up the challenge. David's own oldest brother ridicules him. He said, I know why you're here. He says, you just come to see what's going on. He says, who have you left in charge of those few sheep of your responsibility? That had to be very discouraging. David decides that he's willing to do it. So he volunteers to fight Goliath, and Saul, first of all, tells him, he says, you're not able to go out. See, now more discouragement. You're not able to go out. And while David doesn't fully realize what's going on, his times are in the hands of God. God is going to place David on the throne at some future time, but right now, David's going to find out what God's presence really means. He says, you're not able. David says, God who delivered me from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion shall deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine giant. That tells me that even when David was a shepherd boy, watching over his father's sheep, that he had a recognition and an awareness and understanding of the importance of having God in your life. God who delivered me. David could have said, well, you don't know me, do you? Don't you know that I slew a bear with my bare hands? Don't you know I slew a lion with my bare hands? Uh, I did all this. No, David doesn't boast about it. He says, God who delivered me from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion, he shall deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine giant. This tells me the integrity of David. This tells me the character of David. This tells me that David is not in this for self-glory. David is in this for the glory of God. So Saul gives in, and Saul starts putting armor upon David. 
David starts to put it on, but it, it doesn't fit. He's not accustomed to it. It did not fit literally. Saul was much bigger than David was. By all accounts, David was kind of a short man, and Saul is higher and head and shoulders above all men. He starts putting on the armor, and he stops and says, I've not yet proved this, which simply saying, this is not what I'm accustomed to doing. I, I've never worn armor like this. When I was a shepherd boy, uh, my weapons was a sling and stones and a staff and a rod. So he takes it off. And he takes his sling, he goes down to the brook, and he picks out five smooth stones. A stone that's smooth is more accurate than a stone that's jagged. David knew what he was doing. He picked out five smooth stones. Not just five stones, but five smooth stones. Put them in his shepherd's bag. I firmly believe that's as many as the bag would hold. I think he filled up the bag. It held five. That's how many he put in there. But in the Bible, five is the number of grace. His times are in the hands of God. As we're talking about this, I want us to think about ourselves. I want to think about myself. I want you to think about yourself. How much... You know, do you see in this statement here, my times are in thy hands. Could you be in better hands than that, in the hands of God? You know, State Farm years ago had this slogan about being the good hands people, the insurance company, the good hands people. I wonder how many people State Farm let down over the years. I wonder how many people State Farm failed to come through with the expectations of the people. See, the hands of my God has never let me down. God Almighty has never allowed me to fall short of expectation. I have experiences to go with it. This is the thing. This, David's writing by experience. And the Bible itself is a miraculous book. The way it was written, the way it's been preserved. But there's all kind of miracles in the, within the miracle of this being a miraculous book that God has given us. And here's one of them. God used human beings, used men to write down. God's the author. God used men to pin it down. Okay? But he allowed men to retain their personalities. He allowed men to retain their experiences in pinning down the scriptures. David is writing this verse by divine inspiration, but he's also writing it based upon his experiences in life. When he says, my times are in thy hands, he knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew as he looked back upon his life, had it not been for him being in the hands of God, his life would have been snuffed out numerous times. He'd have never lived out a full lifetime uh, here on this earth. My times are in thy hands. He takes those five smooth stones and he goes out and fights against Goliath. Goliath is a literal giant between nine and ten foot tall. He's experienced in warfare. He has his sword. He has his shield. He looks upon David and he feels very insulted. They sent out a young lad like David to battle against him. But David went to him in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. And David took one stone, one smooth stone out of the five and in his bag. And he slung that stone. And remember, Saul, excuse me, Goliath, is, he's, he has all the armor of a warrior on him from head to toe. And that rock found a place an opening where it caught him right in the forehead. And we find that David rocked Goliath to sleep. <laughs> With that one stone, David rocked Goliath to sleep. I'm talking about a death sleep. And Goliath falls out, and David takes his own sword 
the sword of Goliath, his own sword, and cuts off the head of Goliath. Now, David could say by experience, my times are in the hands of the Lord. Now, just think about this for a second. When David was going out to fight Goliath and all the Israelites and everybody watching this looking on, what do you think they thought? They saw Goliath, a little giant, and he's got a sword that most men couldn't even tote. It was so heavy. He's experiencing warfare, very intimidating, and here comes a little shepherd boy. And all the little shepherd boy's got is a sling in his hand and a pouch here with five smooth stones in it. Wonder what, what they thought. I'm sure they were not too optimistic. I'm sure they uh, didn't have a lot of hope that this battle was going to swing Israel's way. You think? <laughs> but David did. David was confident he was going to win that battle. And he wasn't confident because he saw so much in himself. He didn't see anything in himself. He was confident because he put his trust in the Lord. Remember verse 14? I have trusted in thee, O Lord, for thou art my God. He says, my times are in thy hands. A number of things that happened in David's life, some of his statements he makes going forward are, are statements that can only be made by a person who feels that his times are in the hands of God. Soon after this, we find where Saul becomes very jealous of David. The women started singing a song, says Saul slew, slew his thousands, David slew his ten thousands. That was true. But God was blessing Saul in spite of himself. God was blessing him to win battles. God was blessing him to slay uh, thousands. But he was just blessing David a little bit more. In fact, a whole lot more, I guess. Saul slew his thousands, David his ten thousands, and this caused Saul to become very envious and very jealous of, of David. And from that time forward, he began to plot and to plan how to take David's life. On three occasions, Saul takes a javelin with the intent of throwing that javelin right through the body of David. All three times, David escapes. All three times, very miraculously. He begins to pursue David. Throughout the country, David has to hide in dens and caves and one thing and another. Saul's got a huge army. David's just got himself and a band of faithful men. And we can go into a lot of details about a lot of these escapes that David miraculously had due to the providence of God. But that's not my intent this morning. I just want to kind of hit a few of the highlights along the way. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, there's a meeting between David and his good friend Jonathan, who's the son of Saul. And they have bound themselves in a covenant that the day would come when David would not forget Saul and his household. They're as close as two friends you'll read about in the scriptures. And David tells Saul, Jonathan this. He says, there's just a step between me and death. That was absolutely true. There was just one step between David and death as Saul had full intentions of taking his life. He was the king, he had an army, he had all the resources, and he had his eyes set on David to take his life. David says to Jonathan, there's just a step between me and death. How many steps is it between you and death? How many steps is it between me and death? Just one. Just one. I never know what, where that step will be, what that step will be, when it will be. There's just one step between me and death. If my heart stopped beating right now, uh, that would be my step. One step separating 
me from death right now, this morning, talking to you. Now, I don't usually think about that so much, thankfully. <laughs> you know, but it's, the, it's reality. That was certainly the case with David. And then in chapter 23, I find where there's another meet between David and Jonathan. And the Bible says that Jonathan met David in the woods where he was hiding. It says he strengthened his hand in God. That's what a real friend will do. That's what a true friend will do. They won't try to lead you away from God. They'll try to get you a little closer to God. And they'll remind you about God and God's power and God's promises and God's providence. They'll try to encourage you, not in yourself, not in their, uh, their self. They'll try to encourage you in the Lord, you see. And that's what David would do a little bit later on in his life. He strengthened his hand in God. That's what I'm trying to do here this morning. I'm trying to strengthen your hand in God. I'm trying to do this publicly from the stand, but I'd like to try to do it privately, in person, in conversation, in counsel, whatever it might be. I want to strengthen your hand in God. I want to, you to remember who God is and who you are. I want you to remember you are frail, undone, weak, <laughs> worthless, like John Newton wrote in the hymn, poor, weak, and worthless though I am. But that's not the end of it. Poor, weak, and worthless though I am, yet I have a rich, almighty friend that strengthens me. The gospel will strengthen you. It'll strengthen you, not in your own self. It'll strengthen you in God, in the hands of God. You come to 1 Samuel chapter 30. At this point, you're going to find where David is in the land of the Philistines. He's been out in battle. He comes back. When he comes back, we find where the Amalekites have come to a, it's a place called Ziklag, and they have destroyed the camp, and they've taken their family, their wives, and their children all in captivity. We find where the men are so discouraged, everybody's weeping till they can weep no more, the Bible says. And maybe you've been there before when, when you wept, and you wept, and you wept, and you wanted to weep some more, but tears just wouldn't come out, and tears wouldn't flow. And the men that had been so faithful to David, who highly loved him and respected him, David considered stoning David. You can't get much lower than that. You know what David did? One of my favorite texts in the scriptures says, David encouraged himself in the Lord. David says, my times are in thy hands. He encouraged himself in the Lord. I don't know of any other words I can give you to try to encourage you than to tell you to encourage yourself in the Lord when you feel to be alone, when you feel to be abandoned, when you feel like uh, all is lost. I'm telling you, it is not. God still rules. God still reigns. God's still on his throne. Encourage yourself in the Lord. How did David do that? We're not given specifics. But I just got a feeling that David thought back. Well, you know when I was just a little shepherd boy? One time a lion came and tried to take one of my lambs out of my flock and, and I went and I got him and I got the lamb back. And then one time a lion came and, and he wanted to get one of my lambs and he took it and went away with it. I went after him and I slew him and I got that lamb back and I couldn't have done that without God. I imagine he probably thought about the Goliath battle, wouldn't you? Who could forget it? <laughs> Who could forget something like that? If I had such an experience, how could I ever forget 
that I went out to do battle against somebody much larger, much bigger, more experienced, greater weapons than me. All I had was a little sling and five stones and a little bag. But I reached in and got one stone out and I put it in that sling. And I know David was good, my friends, but I don't think he was this good. And he took and slung that stone, and that stone found its mark by divine providence, God guiding that stone out of that sling where he found the forehead of the giant. I, that would encourage me. <laughs> if that would encourage you, I can't encourage you. That's all there is to it. That would encourage me if I just thought back about that. When, when Saul had thrown a javelin on three different occasions, I imagine Saul was a pretty good javelin thrower. I imagine he was pretty accurate. And all three times I escaped. And time after time after time, it looked like Saul was closing in. But somehow or another, it all worked out that I escaped. And I think of one in particular in the last part of 1 Samuel 23. David was on one side of a mountain. Saul got word where he was at. He split his army up, went around and surrounded the mountain, surrounded David. It looked like this is it. You know, he's made it a lot of times. He's made it a lot, a, a lot of different ways, but, but this is it this time. There's no way out of this one. Saul thinks, I've finally got him. But a messenger came. And the messenger says, Saul, the Philistines have invaded the land. Saul had to stop pursuing David at that point when he had him right in his grasp. He turned around and returned back to do battle against the Philistines. Wonder, wonder just how that happened. And David miraculously escaped again. David, God's not going to let anything happen to David because he's a man out to his own heart. And he is going to be king over Israel. David escaped once again. Let's, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 30 at the end of David's life. Remember, I'm just hitting the high spots to hopefully form a picture in your mind what it means to say, my times are in thy hands. My course of life, my thoughts, my decisions, my actions are in God's hands. It says, these be the last words of David, the son of Jesse, he that was exalted to be king of Israel, he that was made to be king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel said, these be his last words, although my house be not so with God, my house is not, my, my life and my house has not met the standards of perfection, although my house be not so with God, yet he, God, had made with me an everlasting covenant. And Brother Tim spoke about this morning that God is ever mindful of and God will keep. Aren't you glad God didn't say to you, if you just keep my covenant, I'll take you to glory one day. If you'll just keep my covenant, you'll be my child and always my child. If you will keep my covenant, no, the Bible says God keeps his covenant. Aren't you glad he didn't say, if you'll just remember I have a covenant with you and don't ever forget it. If you don't forget it, then you'll stay in that covenant. No, God is ever mindful of his covenant. Thank God it's God who's mindful. Thank God that God's the one who keeps the covenant, right? Amen. Although my house be not so with God. He was honest about it, wasn't he? 
Can you say that today? Or can you say, you think you can say, well, my house is, uh, my house is all right. <laughs> I know you don't think that. I know you're not going to say that. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me personally, individually. He's made with me an everlasting covenant, ordering all things and sure, although he maketh it not to grow. You can't get more solid than that. For my times are in thy hands. Let's talk about the hands of God just for a moment. My times are in thy hands. Thank God my times are not in all state insurance companies' hands. Wonder well, how many people, I emphasize one more time, have been let down, disappointed, discouraged by the results of a claim or whatever, and those good hands won't so good anymore. But God's hands will never disappoint you. When I think about the hands of God, I think about the hands of the mighty hands of God. In 1 Peter 5 and 6, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in due season, he shall exalt thee. In due season, he shall exalt thee. If you humble yourselves under what kind of hands? The mighty hands of God. In 1 Kings chapter 8, you're going to find where Solomon is praying to God. He says, when a stranger from outside the camp of Israel hears about thy great name and thy strong hand and thy outstretched arm and comes among us. Hear thou in heaven. Three things a stranger would hear. He'd hear about the great name of God but the strong hand of God. When I think about the hands of God, I think about the mighty hand of God and the strong hand of God. Daniel 4.35 He said, All the inhabitants of earth are reputed as nothing. But God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Or say unto him, what doest thou? God is omnipotent and he's sovereign. Nobody can stand before God and say, why'd you do this or why'd you do that? Nobody can stand before God and say, you're not going to do this, you're not going to do that. None can stay his hand. Why? Because it's a strong hand and a mighty hand. So when I think of this expression, my times are in thy hands, I want you to know what kind of hands we're talking about. I want you to think about the hands of creation, for example, in Psalms 8 and 3. When David says, when I consider thy heavens, remember the heavens are God's heavens, not, they're not ours. You, you know, in the last two or three years, we got all these spaceships going up and one thing and another and all these great plans. Just remember, they belong to God. When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers... Finger work, that's what it is. Psalms 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God and the front showeth his handiwork. When I think about my times are in thy hands, I want you to know they're the hands that I see the handiwork of every single day that I live. When I look at the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky and the beauty of all this, that's the handiwork of God. That's the hands that David says my times are in thy hands. A mighty hand. The hand of creation. The hand of salvation. We look at John chapter 10. Got a text this morning from a good brother here in the church from John chapter 10. <laughs> verse 26. Start in verse 26. He's addressing some Jews and here's what he tells them. He says, Ye believe not because you're not of my sheep. Now I got to just stop here and make a doctrinal point. Ye believe not because, because is going to tell you why you don't believe. 
That word because is an explanation of something that's just gone before. Ye believe not because you're not of my sheep. That's why you don't believe. It does not say you're not of my sheep because you will not believe. That's the doctrine of the world of free willism. You got to get it worded correctly. You can't twist it around and flip flop it. You believe not because you're not of my sheep, but my sheep that you're not part of, my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither can any man pluck them out of my hand. That's the kind of hands I'm talking about that David says, my times are in thy hands. If you're in the hands of God, no man can, that word pluck, by the way, I decided I'd look it up. I don't hear that word used too much anymore. I grew up on the farm. I know what it was, so go out and kill a chicken and pluck the feathers off. You ever done that? <laughs> the feathers were plucked. <laughs> you had to take force and pluck them out of there. <laughs> Young people today don't know what, <laughs> what it's like to live on the farm and, and eat your own chickens. <laughs> No man can pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. Find the Father of one. I'm kind of liking this expression more and more right now. My times are in thy hands. When I think about the secure hands of God, when I think about the mighty hand of God, when I think about the strong hand of God, when I think about the hand of God that I see in creation in the daytime and creation at nighttime, I'm starting to like this expression a little bit more. My times are in thy hands. Here are the secure hands of God, the hands of salvation, the mighty hands of God, the hands of blessing. You know the last thing Jesus Christ did on this earth before he ascended? He's with his disciples at Bethany. Here's the last thing Jesus did on this earth before he left this earth to go to be with the Lord in glory. He says he lifted up his hands and blessed his disciples. The hands of blessing. Acts eleven twenty one, we find where the gospel is being blessed of God, and the Bible says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of blessing. Has the hand of God's blessing been with you? I like that hymn. The hymn writer wrote, Oh, he hath touched me. Oh, he hath touched me. Whoever wrote that hymn knew something about being touched by the hand of God. The blessings of God's hands. The healing of God's hands. How many times you read in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus Christ took a blind man, for example, and led him out of town and blessed him to have his sight returned. He took uh, and touched a leper. And that was unthinkable, my friends. You didn't touch a leper. You become contaminated. But the one who came to save us from our sins, which lepers is a type of, he didn't mind touching a leper. And he touched him with his hands and healed him. The healing hands of God. The hands, again, of God's gracious blessings. My times are in thy hands. That helps give me patience. That helps give me encouragement. Right now, Karen and I just, well, I started to say we just moved. We have not just moved. We are still moving. It's been about a, 13-day move so far. I'm anticipating probably 13 months before it's over with. But one of the things that I need your prayers on, <laughs> we need to sell a house. 
And then the Almighty God can send somebody into our life. And this has been my prayer. Lord, send us somebody that will like our house. Send us somebody that will be a blessing for them that buys it and a blessing for us that sells it. I want them to be, have a blessing out of it. And so he just hadn't sent them yet. <laughs> but this verse, maybe this is why it's on my mind. My times are in thy hands. Thank God I have confidence in the hands. This is a statement of a man who had total confidence and trust in the hands of God. He'd experienced God's hand of deliverance time and time and time again. He'd experienced the hand of God's deliverance and given him strength and encouragement and courage to fight the battles that he fought. He encouraged himself in the Lord. My times are in thy hands. I don't believe in fatalism. <laughs> fatalism it means that you are someone who believes in the absolute predestination of all things. We don't believe that. Providence and predestination are two entirely different things. But I'm a strong advocate believer in the providence of God, in an all-wise God, an all-powerful God, all-caring God, all-loving God, and all God, a God of all compassion. I believe in a God like that that loves me and gave his son to die for me. If he gave his son to die for me, I believe he's concerned with my life right here on this earth. That's why he said uh, that he numbers the very hairs on our head. Now, a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without the knowledge of God. I tell you, that shows how, how God loves us to the nth degree when he says the very hairs of your head are numbered. Now, some of you out here <clears throat> wouldn't have much trouble numbering your head. I'm getting close to that point. <laughs> but I see some out here that's got a pretty full head of hair, and I want to ask you how long you think it would take you to count every hair in your head if it were possible to do so. Can you imagine getting 90% done <laughs> and getting interrupted and forgot what your count was and having to start over? God knows the very number of hair in your head. It's amazing. <laughs> I want to close out this morning one of the most uh, tender pictures I believe of the care of God is found in the scriptures as far as I'm concerned. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, he says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the apple trees among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. If this is not the banqueting house of God, I'm greatly deceived. He, God, brought me to his banqueting house and his banner over me was love. That's why he brought me here. I don't know why God would love me, but I believe he does. <laughs> I just feel with all my heart that I'm an object of God's love this morning. I hope you do. If you felt anything in the message this morning, if your heart's been stirred, if your soul has been edified, I'm telling you, God loves you. Why we love you, why we love me is beyond comprehension because I know my nature, I know myself, and by nature I'm unlovable. Why would God love me? But I believe he did. And I believe in his marvelous providence over the course of time. I've been, I've been blessed all the days of my life. I was raised up in the old church. I was in the right place at the right time when it pleased God to show me his mercy and show me his grace. I didn't have to go looking for it and searching for it like many of you have and did. 
And sometimes people say, you know, I don't think people who grew up with it appreciate it like those who come from the outside. I don't know. I didn't come from the outside, so I can't compare. But I tell you one thing, I love it. I don't think you love it any more than I do. <laughs> he brought me to the banqueting house where I hear the message of God's love of God's great love, of God's amazing love, of God's miraculous love. I've come to a place where people love one another. You can feel the love of God flowing from heart to heart and breast to breast. I'm in a place where people sing about love and they pray about love and they preach about love and they have charity and love, my friends, is manifest from one to the other. I'll tell you what, uh, that's a great place to be. It's the banqueting house of God. And then he says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand doth embrace me. The Bible says filled with word pictures. Do you get the picture? Kind of reminds me how you hold a baby. Left hand under the head, right hand down underneath, hold it securely. His left hand was under my head, his right hand doth embrace me the caring and loving hands of God. My times are in thy hands. I'm not worried about God's hands becoming old and weak and feeble and frail. Are you? I believe his hands are just as omnipotent today as they've ever been because God is God. He's eternal. And God is not man. God is still omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient.